It can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. What could you do if your data was working for you and not against you? With Bloomberg delivering enterprise data directly to your systems, you get easy access to the details you want, optimized for higher-level analysis, and financial data experts committed to helping you maximize your every move. Our data is made for more, so you can show the world what you're made of. Visit Bloomberg.com enterprise data to learn more. This is Bloomberg Law with June Grosso from Bloomberg Radio. There's a clash between religious rights and gay rights in a case before the Supreme Court. A Catholic charity's refusal to work with same-sex couples when placing foster children came up against Philadelphia's enforcement of anti-discrimination requirements in its contracts with the private agencies that screen potential foster families. Justice Samuel Alito was skeptical about the city's policy. It's not about ensuring that same-sex couples in Philadelphia have the opportunity to be foster parents. It's the fact that the city can't stand the message that Catholic Social Services and the Archdiocese are sending by continuing to adhere to the old-fashioned view about marriage. Justice Sonia Sotomayor expressed concerns about other forms of discrimination. What is dangerous is the idea that a contractor with a religious belief could come in and say, exclude other religions from being families, certifying families, exclude someone with a disability. Um, How do we avoid that or exclude interracial couples? Joining me is Steve Sanders, a professor at Indiana University's Morris School of Law. Steve, tell us about the issue at the heart of the case. So the city of Philadelphia, like many cities and government entities, works with private organizations to carry out certain kinds of social services. In this case, the city of Philadelphia has a working relationship with Catholic Social Services, an agency affiliated with the Catholic Church. This agency helps to screen potential parents to serve as foster parents and then to place children in foster homes, children who are in the city's custody because their parents have abandoned them or they've been taken away from their parents. Well, because this is a Catholic organization, they say same-sex marriage is against our principles. And they say that having to certify the suitability of a same-sex couple, married or unmarried, for a foster child placement would violate their religious principles, their free exercise of religion. And the city of Philadelphia has a non-discrimination policy. It basically says, you can't do business with us in this capacity if you're going to discriminate on the basis of sexual orientation. The Catholic Social Services Agency says, hey, that violates our religious rights under the First Amendment. You are discriminating against us because of our religious beliefs and our religious practices. The First Amendment doesn't allow that. So then does this case harken back to Masterpiece Cake Shop where a Colorado baker refused to make a cake for the wedding of a same-sex couple? 
It is in many ways not quite a replay of Masterpiece Cake Shop, but it certainly sets up the same tension. That's right. You have a city or a state policy. In Masterpiece, it was a Colorado state law. This is a policy of the city of Philadelphia that is intended to protect gays and lesbians against discrimination. In that case, you had a baker. In this case, you have a nonprofit organization that says, hey, we have entitlements under the First Amendment, and the Constitution's First Amendment trumps ordinary city or state policies. There are some differences. In Masterpiece, the baker put forward a theory that was really centrally based on First Amendment free speech. He said, hey, my cakes, when I decorate them and provide them, are a form of speech. They're a form of expression. They represent my endorsement of the wedding or the couple, and the government can't compel me to engage in that kind of speech and expression for a couple I disapprove of. This case is more squarely focused on the First Amendment's religion clauses. And so Catholic Social Services really isn't making a speech claim. They are basically saying this is discrimination against us. This is government mistreatment of us based on our religious beliefs. Some of the conservative justices seemed hostile to Philadelphia's argument. For example, Justice Brett Kavanaugh said the city was looking for a fight. I think there were a number of points that some of the conservative justices pointed out. One, they pointed out that no same-sex couple has actually ever been denied the opportunity to serve as foster parents. In other words, some of the conservative justices were trying to say this policy seems to be a solution in search of a problem. And so why are you going to essentially punish this Catholic organization, which is trying to do good work and trying to uphold its ministry when there really isn't any problem to be addressed. And then there was also the more legal point that some of the conservative justices were trying to grapple with, and that is whether the city is applying a policy in an even-handed way. In other words, the lawyer for the Catholic Social Services Agency and some of the conservative justices were saying, hey, the city makes exemptions from its non-discrimination or from its other policies in other areas. It doesn't necessarily apply all of its policies. And if that is the case, then that raises the stakes. Normally, under the Supreme Court's current law, As long as a policy is applied even-handedly, an organization or a person generally is not able to challenge that policy based on the burden it places on their religious beliefs. But if there's evidence that a city or a government entity is not applying a policy in a uniform, even-handed way, but rather, well, we're going to hold you to one strict standard but not hold everybody to the same kind of standard, then it raises the possibility this is sort of targeted discrimination against against a particular religious group or religious belief. So now, did you get any feel from her questions as to how the newest justice was looking at this case? Any signals? No, Justice Barron asked good questions. You know, there there used to be a sort of tradition that new justices didn't say much or or weren't particularly uh, uh, bold at oral argument. But in this COVID time, when the Supreme Court is still doing arguments virtually uh, rather than in person, it's sort of a new way of doing things where the chief justice basically calls on each justice in order of seniority. They ask their questions and then the chief justice moves on to the next justice. And so that sort of suggests that each justice gets equal time. And so Justice Barrett certainly jumped right in. She was the last justice called on for 
you know, each set of questions, but uh, she asked good questions. I, I, I wouldn't say that she betrayed a, a, a sort of an agenda or a bias one way or the other. Um, in, in these religion cases, especially the cases involving religion versus gay rights, it's, it's typically more Justice Alito, who frankly is the, the, the person who is more skeptical of claims about gay rights and seems to be a bit more partisan, to, to be frank, uh, in, in, in defense of religious interests and eager to see sort of discrimination or even persecution against religion when he thinks it's wrongful. But no, Justice Barrett asked uh, uh, good questions of both sides, and I wouldn't say she betrayed uh, necessarily a, a, a prediction uh, either way of how she's likely to come out in this case. Now, Chief Justice Roberts, who was in the minority, I believe, in the Obergefell same-sex marriage case, he seemed to be asking questions about whether, you know, a different policy would conflict with Obergefell. That's right. He, he, he sort of right out of the gate in asking questions of the Catholic Social Service Agency's lawyer, he seemed to lay down a marker that Obergefell and more generally the principle of equal treatment for gays and lesbians, especially married gay and lesbian couples, um, is the law. And so now let's try to figure out if this policy actually violates it or not. It was really Chief Justice Roberts who also seemed interested in an argument that might limit the potential impact of this case. In other words, one issue here was whether the Catholic Social Services Agency is a government contractor or whether it just gets a a license from the city. If you just get a license from the government, you're still a private individual and you're entitled to conduct your business according to your own conscience. If you're a government contractor, then you are basically doing the government's work for it and the government is more entitled to set a standard of behavior and to regulate your work and to say you have to do it this way, not that way. So that may be one distinction that this case, uh, that's important in this case, whether the agency is a licensee versus a government contractor, because that really affects to what extent it has the rights independently to carry on its own mission while still expecting a relationship with the city versus, hey, you know, if you're going to do our work, you have to play by our rules. And, 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 and the chief justice seemed sympathetic potentially to the idea that Catholic Social Services Agency is closer to a government contractor. And what about the liberals on the court? Did their questioning suggest any possible compromise or there were some suggestions particularly from justice Breyer, that he was looking for a way for example to say well you know catholic social services agency why can't you just kind of look objectively about whether a particular couple you know meets a, a clear sort of objective factual criteria uh, you know, is, is their home good? Do they lack any criminal background? Would they objectively be good foster parents? And, and why can't you just sort of factor out um, their sexual orientation? But the lawyer for the Catholic Social Services Agency pushed back on that, said, no, we, it's not that simple. We, we can't ignore that. Uh, if, it's, if it's known that they are gay or lesbian or if it's a same-sex couple that's in a marital relationship, um, just the very idea of certifying them as suitable 
for uh, service as foster parents would be a violation of our religion. You know, one interesting thing about this case is it shows how, you know, this is clearly a function the government could do itself. It could do these inspections and certifications with its own employees, yet it chooses to involve these private social service organizations in its work. And, and that raises complications then. To what extent is this the city trying to tell the Catholic Church how to do its business? Or is it about the Catholic Church trying to tell the city how to do its business? It, it may be a good thing that we have these sorts of public-private partnerships. Um, certainly, religious organizations have long been involved in the work of caring for children and orphans and so forth. But it does suggest that um, you know these sorts of partnerships open up potential complications like this. In past cases where religious liberties are being balanced, especially if you look at the last few terms, almost every case the Supreme Court has expanded religious liberties. So in this case, I mean, is it likely that the Supreme Court is going to opt to expand religious liberties again at the expense of gay rights? Well, it, it, as you remember from the masterpiece, the the the, the 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 ultimate end, the ultimate opinion, the ultimate decision in the masterpiece cake shop, uh, sort of, you know, the, the case ended with a whimper rather than with a bang, because the court in the end sort of ducked the larger question about the First Amendment rights of a baker, and it decided the case on pretty narrow, fact-specific grounds. It said when this baker came before the authorities in Colorado and they adjudicated his case, they treated him in a way that was discriminatory and abusive toward his religious beliefs. So they, they gave him the judgment, but they didn't make a sweeping decision about the scope of the First Amendment. That seems at least possible here, um, that, that rather than making some big innovation in the, the law of the Constitution's religious cla- religion clauses in a way that would greatly expand the ability of religious organizations to follow their own courses in violation of uh, a state law, um, uh, it's possible that the court might resolve this on a narrower ground, might say, well, in this situation, uh, the religious organization is not being treated even-handedly. The city makes exemptions and it has holes in its policies and other circumstances. The fact it's not willing to give an exemption or accommodation here shows it's holding the religious organization to a different standard. If the court did that, that would simply be an application of a pretty long-standing doctrine of, of uh, that, that, that neutral rules of general application are okay, like non-discrimination laws, as long as you apply them even-handedly. But if the treatment is not even-handedly, that's when we get nervous and, and it, it subjects the case to a stricter level of scrutiny. I tend to think that might be what happens in this case. It, it, the Justices didn't seem to betray any particular appetite through their questions anyway for making the kind of broad sweeping changes that might affect other cases and other plaintiffs and other parties down the road. Is that true even in light of the fact that there was an opinion where Justices Clarence Thomas and Samuel Alito seemed to be urging the court to reconsider same-sex marriage? That's right. That that was a, a different case. That was the case of the 
a Kentucky clerk from uh, uh, who had denied marriage licenses to a same-sex couple, and they sued her, and it came to the court because she's claiming uh, uh, immunity from their suit, and the court turned down the opportunity to hear that case. And uh, Justices Alito and Thomas Right, issued an opinion that said, you know, this case just illustrates the kind of clashes that we're going to see. That that this case, that the court deciding the same-sex marriage issue, uh, was premature. It should have left it to the democratic process. There, there, there would be clashes uh, and, 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 and negative implications for religious liberty. We told you so, because of course, uh, the, the clerk in Kentucky had said that her religious beliefs prevented her from issuing the license. I, I, I'm not sure if we're going to see that here because this case isn't squarely about same-sex marriage. It, it, it doesn't involve the ability to get married or the ability to get a marriage license, which is what this case that we talked about involving Kim Davis involved. Um, this is somewhat more broadly about discrimination against gays and lesbians uh, on the basis of sexual orientation, not about gay marriage squarely. Although, you know, true, some of the people who are uh, uh, involved here who are concerned are, are, are legally married gay couples. They're concerned that they might be turned away. Um, so it, it, it is a case about religious liberty. It is a case about gay rights, but nothing in the questioning, uh, I think at least from Justice Thomas, uh, suggested the sort of um, uh, almost passion that they uh, betrayed in that separate opinion in the Kim Davis case. Thanks, Steve. That's Steve Sanders of Indiana University's Morris School of Law. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. Parents who've lost their jobs during the pandemic are behind a surge of litigation against employers they allege discriminated against them for taking care of their kids when schools closed. Most of the suits have been brought by women who are leaving the workforce in record numbers this year. My guest is Bloomberg legal reporter David Yaffe Bellany. David, tell us more about these suits and what the allegations are. Sure. So since the beginning of the pandemic, since schools and daycares shut down and parents have had to figure out how to take care of their children during the day while doing their jobs, the professional lives of millions of people across the country have been totally upended. And in some cases, employers have responded generously to that. They've allowed parents to work on flexible schedules. They've let parents take time off so that they can supervise Zoom school for their kids. But in other cases, employers have treated parents really badly, at least according to this sort of surge of of lawsuits that we're seeing across the country now. Some parents are saying that employers have denied them leave time that they're entitled to under the law. Other parents have said that they've taken leave time and then faced retaliation when they've returned, basically being punished for taking time off to look after their kids. And in all likelihood, this legal battle will expand in the coming months as the pandemic intensifies and as employers across virtually every industry start start to lose patience. You talked to 
Drisana Rios, who had been fired. Tell us about her story, which seems to be an example of what's been happening. So Drisana is a is a mother in San Diego with a couple of young children. Um, she worked for an insurance company called Hub International. And like so many other parents across the country, when the pandemic hit, suddenly it became a lot more difficult to, to, to do her job the way that she'd always always done it. You know, previously her kids had been in daycare. Now she had to kind of figure out how to supervise them during during the day. And one sort of problem that her boss kept raising is that sometimes her kids were audible in the background of, of conference calls during the workday. Um, and she basically said to her boss, you know, what am I supposed to do? I can't lock my one-year-old in a closet. But he was adamant that, that she had to do something about this. And that basically started a kind of series of events that led to her being fired in June. And eventually she sued Hub International to kind of to protest that firing, accusing them of, of gender discrimination and of treating her differently because she's a working mother. On the employer's side, is it always wrong for the employer to say, because there are other stories of children in the background, et cetera, is it wrong for the employer to demand a workplace setting when parents have children in the background? Because I can imagine that it, it is distracting. Is that by itself a bad thing for employers to say? So, you know, it, it sort of runs along a spectrum, and this is one of the naughty legal issues that um, presumably some of this litigation will end up kind of illuminating over over the next few months. You know, these are unprecedented circumstances, and so these sorts of issues haven't really been been litigated before. So the extent to which an employer is is required to make compromises and accommodations for workers whose parenting responsibilities in some way interfere with kind of the smooth functioning of of the workday, the kind of legality of that is not is not totally settled. But there's an argument that a lot of consultants for businesses are making now, which is that, you know, regardless of, of the legal questions here, it's in the interest of employers to create accommodations for working parents just for reputational reasons, um, for employee retention reasons. Um, eventually, the pandemic will end and presumably some of these working parents will kind of return to offices and their kids will go back to school. And at that point, you'd, you'd want parents to have kind of warm and fuzzy feelings about how they were, were treated during this kind of period of, of disruption. And so there are kind of practical and strategic reasons and you know, moral reasons to treat parents with a lot of flexibility during this period, even if there's some kind of legal wiggle room. And what's the difference between proving a retaliation case and proving a discrimination case? If a lawsuit's alleging retaliation, all that the plaintiff needs to show is that when, in this case, the working parent returned from a period of parental leave, they were treated differently. Uh, they were treated worse than before. That's all it takes to prove retaliation. Proving discrimination is a little bit more complicated. It requires essentially demonstrating that the reason that a parent was treated in a certain way, that the treatment was rooted in discrimination and that, that the motive of the employer was to discriminate. That's more complicated to prove. In a lot of these cases, um, lawyers will allege both retaliation and discrimination, knowing that retaliation is a lower threshold than discrimination and that they're more likely to win on that front. Employers who just out and out refuse to grant employees, working parents, leave, 
Is that illegal under the Families First Coronavirus Response Act? In some cases, it is. So the Families First Coronavirus Response Act was legislation passed by Congress in March um, as part of that kind of first wave of political response to the devastation of the pandemic. Um, That did a lot of things, but one thing it did was grant 10 extra weeks of paid parental leave to certain types of workers, workers at businesses that employ fewer than 500 people and certain public employees as well. So there's been, you know, litigation over the past few months about, you know, whether certain employees meet the requirements, the eligibility requirements of this legislation. Um, So it's not the case that, you know, every worker in America is entitled to leave under this program. Um, But in a lot of these lawsuits, parents are saying, I was pretty clearly entitled to leave, you know, the company I work for is is this size, it's fewer than 500 employees. I asked for leave, I specifically cited this new program that I read about in the newspapers, and my boss said, too bad, you can't take that leave. And that does appear to be illegal, it appears to kind of violate the, the, the protections the government was offering under this bit of legislation. I was surprised by the numbers of women who are leaving the workforce this year. Tell us about that and whether it's expected to continue. So the numbers in September, for example, are pretty striking. More than 600,000 women left the workforce that month alone compared to just 78,000 men. Now, of course, not all these people are parents. You know, not all of them are being fired for childcare-related reasons. Some are leaving the workforce voluntarily. But this is kind of part of a broad picture in which women, working women, are feeling the brunt of the pandemic in a way that men just aren't. There are all sorts of reasons for that. But one is the childcare burden that women face. Some of the women who are leaving voluntarily are doing so because they don't have very many other options. They need to take they, they need to take care of their children while while schools are closed. But then others sort of fall into the category that, that we've been discussing, you know, women who were, were fired because they were trying to juggle work and child care and their employer just wasn't willing to make compromises to sustain that. And Joan Williams, a law professor who runs the Center for Work-Life Law, told you we're going to be seeing the economic consequences of this period and they're going to be to impoverish women and children for decades. It's a pretty stark prediction. Yeah, and, and, and Joan Williams is really one of the leading figures in this part of the law. She's kind of a, a sort of a pioneering legal expert um, who's spoken and written a lot about workplace discrimination and how it affects women in particular and how it affects their economic prospects. So she's an authority on this sort of thing, and, and her prediction is, is pretty dire. And it makes sense when you when you look at those numbers from September, 600,000 women versus um, a much smaller group of men who've left the workforce, um, that in the long term, this is going to make it harder for, for women to return to, to work after the pandemic ends. It's going to set back their careers. It's maybe going to reverse gains that women have made in the workplace over the last last few decades, make it harder for them to rise up the corporate ranks to positions that come with greater responsibilities and that pay better. Um, and that the ramifications of this could continue, you know, long after the sort of short-term effects of the, of the virus have worn off. And we're coming toward the end of the year, so it's going to be time for raises and promotions and bonuses. Are the experts telling you that working parents may be affected negatively? 
Yes, one thing that's important to remember about the litigation is that these lawsuits that have been filed, at least 40 across the country, are kind of zeroing in on the most egregious examples of discrimination or abuse by by employers. But in the vast majority of cases, working mothers and fathers aren't, you know, being explicitly denied leave that they're legally entitled to or told that if they take that leave that when they return they'll be demoted. The consequences that working parents across the board are sort of more likely to experience are these kinds of subtler effects. A job posting opens up within the company, the boss is trying to decide who's, you know, earned that promotion. And without, you know, consciously attempting to discriminate against the working parent, the boss ends up favoring somebody who doesn't have kids and who's therefore been more productive over the last six months than, than the person who's been balancing work and child care. And combating those sort of subtler forms of discrimination is, is much more difficult because it's not the type of thing that's, that's easy to sue over. It might not necessarily be illegal. And a manager might not even realize that they're playing into it, and yet it's likely to start happening uh, over the next few months as you know raises are being considered and, and promotions are being considered. And the other side of the picture is the workers who are diligently working and have found ways to deal with their families or don't have families at all. And do they feel like they're getting the short end of the stick and that the workers with kids are enjoying more benefits and flexibility. Yes, there have been some examples of that reported over the last few months, particularly at tech companies like Facebook and Salesforce, where management has offered quite generous benefits to working parents, and that started to grate on a younger workforce that's accustomed to kind of devoting a lot of their lives to their careers. Some of those workers are saying, hey, why is that older employee who has kids getting extra time off when I'm working harder than I've ever done before and my benefits haven't changed? That's led to a little bit of kind of internal discontent at some of those companies. And it's not just in tech. You know, I spoke to a consultant who works with companies and she said that it's something that she's sort of seeing across the board. And again, that's something that's only likely to intensify over the next few months. Looking forward, do the experts expect that this experience we're having during the pandemic might change the workplace for the better in any respect? Well, I'm glad you asked that question because I've been sounding pessimistic this whole time. (laughs) But the one note of optimism here is that employers that are offering improved benefits and embracing the advantages of flexible work schedules for parents may continue doing that after the pandemic ends, and that could be a long-term gain. There are employers who would never have considered doing this if they hadn't been forced to, who are now realizing, wait, this actually works pretty well. We can afford to give this level of flexibility to parents without compromising our bottom line productivity. And those sorts of companies might continue doing that in the long term. So that benefits unlikely to sort of outweigh the immediate and profoundly damaging economic costs that especially women are experiencing. But it's, it's a silver lining here. Thanks, David. That's Bloomberg legal reporter David Yaffe Bellany. And that's it for this edition of the Bloomberg Law Show. I'm June Grosso. Thanks so much for listening. And remember to tune to the Bloomberg Law Show every weeknight at 10 p.m. Eastern right here on Bloomberg Radio. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. 
Join heads of state, influential ministers, and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights, and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com.